for me, it was really just the, the difference between starting a life as an employee or starting a life as an entrepreneur. And I knew that I would struggle more as an entrepreneur. That's the sort of the, the path that I just knew much less about. And, uh, but ultimately it would, you know, the sooner I start the, the, the faster I'm going to succeed in it. So, um, it was, yeah, it was, it was scary. It was exciting. Um, I felt like I was putting my knowledge to real practical use. So not stuff that I was necessarily learning in classrooms, but just this love for kind of logic and numbers and statistics, uh, being able to apply that and kind of, you know, give an F you to the casinos and, and take some of their money. That it was a ride. Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon, the investing show with a buzz. Sit back, relax. Let's take the edge off. Grab a nice glass of bourbon and enjoy. Cheers from your host, James Vermillion. But first, let me kindly remind you, the information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. I'm James Vermillion, founder of Vermillion Private Wealth. And I'll admit this episode is a little bit different because we're talking about gambling. Yes, this is an investing show, but a lot of people don't understand the difference between investing and gambling. And who better to discuss that with than a former professional blackjack player and card counter turned financial coach? Chris Hanna joined me at the bar to tackle the similarities between gambling and investing, but more importantly, the differences. Chris also shared his story of bypassing Wall Street to become a professional blackjack player, learning to count cards, and some basic strategies. And while I found it all very fascinating, you won't catch me at the casino anytime soon. Enjoy. Hello, Chris. Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. Hey, James. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. I'm excited to talk a little bit today about gambling. Now, I know this is a show that's about building wealth and investing and and good habits. So that might throw people off a little bit, but I'm excited to talk about gambling. I'm just going to be perfectly honest with you. I'm a terrible gambler, particularly when we're talking cards. I'm the guy who gets invited to the card game so they can take my money because they they know they can and I'll bring good booze. So, So that's where I'm at as far as gambling goes. But you actually made a living for some time as a professional blackjack player, which seems totally unfathomable to me. And we'll get into that. And I'm excited to hear how that happened, how it ended up, and then talk about investing and what the differences between gambling and investing are, why people get them confused sometimes and, and all those fun things. But first, I think we should drink a little bourbon. Let's do it. So, I'm also a terrible gambler, by the way, and we can get into that, but I, <laughs> yeah, I hate I losing money. I hate losing money. So yeah, I, I'm probably just as bad as you are at, at the, the regular stuff. Yeah, I'll tell you, when we get into a, a, a game of Hold'em, I'm the yeah. guy who can't help but smile when I have a good hand. So yeah, I'm just a dead giveaway. But but anyways, so we're drinking today. Uh, you recommended it actually, which is cool. Um, Basil Hayden's, which is uh, a brand I haven't had in quite some time, probably several years. So I'm excited to give it another another whirl here. But I can tell you it's a Beam Suntory product, uh, makers of Jim Beam. Hmm. And um, it's relatively low proof. It's 80 proof. So it shouldn't be... Uh, ripping anyone apart when they taste it. 
Um, and it's a relatively high rye mash bill. So you might get some peppery notes uh, from that rye. So I'm going to give it a little little smell, a little taste, and uh, let you know what I think. Hmm. I'll let you tell me what you think first, because yeah, it's yeah. going to sound more eloquent coming from you. Well, we'll see. Uh, one of my favorite tricks back when I was in the bourbon business was to do a tasting with someone, and then you can lead them down any path you want. That's always fun. But I'll tell you on the nose, I get a little cooked red fruit. Um, otherwise, it's pretty straightforward, very subtle, your typical kind of oak and, and vanilla. Not a whole lot of the pepper, which I was expecting a, a little more of that. Um, definitely not overpowering. It's not going to burn your nostrils or anything like yeah. that. So it's really nice, especially for a, a 2 p.m. Eastern recording. So yeah. you do get more of that spice. I can feel it in my throat there on the, t- on the taste, especially up front with some, some fruit. I get a little bit of peach, very light, very light, but not in a bad way. Um, and then despite being lower proof, it actually lingers a little bit longer than I would expect. So a little peppery at the end again. And uh, yeah, it's nice. It's, it's just a, a, a good quality um, bourbon. It's been a while since I've had it, but it's quite tasty. Yeah. seems to go down well. And uh, again, I, you absolutely could lead me down any path that you wanted to, but I feel like I do taste that pepperiness lingering afterwards. Pretty prominent, actually. Yeah, it is. It hangs around. It really does, which which I think is quite nice, really, as long as you're somewhat expecting it. Sometimes that can sneak up on people. This was a good choice. It's 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 been a while and good to be reintroduced to Basil Hayden. So we'll continue to to sip on this. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, let's get into this. We There's a lot of things I, I want to talk to you about, both kind of on the gambling side, the investing side, and then the intermingling of the two and, and how they're related and how they're certainly not related yeah. um, in other areas. But first, why don't you just give us a little background on how in the world you ended up um, being a professional blackjack player? Yeah. So I guess it really starts back in maybe 2008 when I was sitting in the theater and watching the movie 21. It's this uh, gambling movie. I don't know if you've seen it based on the MIT blackjack team uh, that, you know, they counted cards as a team back in the eighties. And I was in, I think early high school at that time. So I couldn't actually gamble, but I was a math and a sort of stats guy. So that sort of stuck with me. It planted a seed. And um, as I, you know, turned 21 uh, in college, I started thinking about that as a real possibility to sort of move forward with after I graduated, because I had really just always wanted to, I knew what I didn't want. What I didn't want was a regular job. You know, I wanted to pursue entrepreneurship and learn how to create a business myself. And I thought blackjack would be a great way to do that. So my roommate, my college roommate was also a numbers guy. I reached out to him about six months before we graduated and just said, Hey, we're both thinking about what we want to do after college. I think at that point we both had some job offers, but I said, let's, let's dish those. I think we can really make some money playing blackjack. And so for the following six months leading up to graduation, that's what we did every single day is we got a fold up uh, foldable table. We got the blackjack felt, um, we, we got the plastic shoe so we could actually count through, you know, six practice going through six and eight deck shoes. And, uh, that's what we did every single day, just practicing being professional blackjack players. And then we actually hit a couple of casinos before we graduated, just a couple local, um, in, in Atlantic City, uh, kind of got our feet wet, and then yeah, once we actually graduated, we we just went wild. I mean, that's 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 what we started doing. What I mean, what is that like? You know, like you said, most most kids that, that go to college, they go to college, and then they find some job that is at least maybe moderately related to their major, 
and they build a career kind of step-by-step over a period of 25 years, then they retire. Mm-hmm. What, what was that like for you to kind of step outside that? I'm sure it was exciting, scary. Maybe your parents were, were not happy with you. Maybe they didn't care. Uh, just what was that kind of period of your life like? Yeah, all of that. They definitely did care. I mean, in particular, my, I mean, my parents are classic, you know, middle-class, hardworking folks. My dad is an immigrant from Lebanon and uh, it, they just were deeply <laughs> unhappy when I called them up and said, Hey, uh, I've got this job offer. Uh, on Wall Street, and I think that I want to turn it down. In fact, before I made that call, I was pretty certain that I was going to go play blackjack instead. And my mom's like, "Why can't you do both?" And for me, it was really just the, the difference between starting a life as an employee or starting a life as an entrepreneur. And I knew that I would struggle more as an entrepreneur. That's the sort of the, the path that I just knew much less about. And uh, but ultimately, it would you know the sooner I start, the 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 faster I'm going to succeed in it. So. Um, it was, yeah, it was, it was scary. It was exciting. Um, I felt like I was putting my knowledge to real practical use. So not stuff that I was necessarily learning in classrooms, but just this love for kind of logic and numbers and statistics, uh, being able to apply that and, and kind of, you know, give an F you to the casinos and, and take some of their money that it was a ride. That's hilarious. And, and, I, I just, I really can't even wrap my head around it. I'm curious, like going through this process, what did that look like for you guys? Was that, what was your success rate? How did you kind of define whether you were doing well? I mean, obviously you had to live off of this money at this point. This is a, this is a, a job for all intents and purposes, not a, uh, just a, Hey, we're going to go hang out at the casino and and hopefully bring home a couple extra hundred bucks. Like you've got to, you've got to make ends meet here. So how, how well did you do in, 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 in all of that? Yeah. So probably a combination of you being a great host and sipping on this uh, Basil Hayden's, but like, even as you're talking about this, my, my heart and excitement is starting to sort of rile up again because <laughs> yeah, it's, it was just, it was just a really crazy time. So, um, uh, a, a couple things there, our success rate, we, we won between 60 and 65% of our sessions, which I think like looking back, there's a little bit of bias there because sometimes, um, you know, we might leave a casino a bit earlier than normal if we, uh, like in the first 15 minutes or up a thousand bucks or or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas we might stay a little bit longer if the count never really changes much. We never really get an opportunity to actually, it's less about the opportunity to put more on the table and more about how much have we sort of showcased ourselves to the casino. Because one of the biggest tells of a card counter is just fluctuating your bet. And so if not really our, you know, fluctuating our bet, then, you know, uh, we, we might've stayed a bit longer. So, but session rate about 60 to 65% of the time, yeah, we, we had to depend on that. So emotionally, at first, it was uh, it was kind of difficult. But you know, and going to your other question about how we judged our success, w- the thing with blackjack is it's a very finite, um, clear cut game. Like there are literal percentages, uh, uh, you know, edges attributed to every single count in you know, throughout gameplay. So you can measure your expected value and your standard deviation. And so based on the number of hands that we played, we knew within, you know, one or two standard deviations, how close we should be to our expected value. Uh, That being said, it does take, you know, 10,000, 100,000 hands to really start to, you know, revert to the mean and and see that average. Uh, But, and not, but, and so that's kind of what we were seeing. There's a lot of fluctuation, but over time we were seeing an upward trend and, um, and that's kind of how we judge our success. So I'm just curious more, more from a entertainment standpoint, what happens, um, 
did you ever get called out for counting cards? How, how does that happen? And, and what happens? Like, do they just ask you to leave? I mean, do they put you on a list? Like, what is that? What, what happens there? Yeah, there's what happened to us. And then there's what happens to other folks that aren't so lucky. So uh, depending on where you go, it's, it's going to be a bit different. And depending on how almost like obnoxious or disrespectful that you are. So for example, if you're just a regular card counter, whatever that means to be a regular card counter, um, <laughs> if you are just kind of going about your business, trying to win a little money, um, typically <laughs> typically the the they start to fill the pit, which is the area that the tables surround with more and more pit bosses, just to sort of, I think it does a couple of things, but try and kind of scare you out, scare you off. Uh, I also have this theory that it's also so that the pit bosses can see you and see your face because there's this, you know, people say that pit bosses never forget a face. So I think it's an opportunity for them to kind of see you. Um, and then uh, you get a tap on your shoulder, usually two or three people behind you. And they say, sir, your blackjack skills are too good for us. Uh, you can play any other game in the casino, but you can't play this one. Um, so please color up your chips and leave. And that is pretty standard. If you're being really sort of obnoxious, splitting tens, just wildly fluctuating your bet from, let's say, you know, a $50 hand to a five that table max, um, they, they might trespass you, which means they, you know, make you sign a, a little notice that says you have now been barred from this casino. And if you return, we have the right to arrest you, not for counting cards, but for trespassing on our private property. <laughs> Oh my gosh. That's like more serious than I expected. I thought it was kind of a, Hey, sir, like, you know, move along, go, go next door. Um, trust me, no one would ever kick me out of a casino, at least for that, at least for that reason. So, um, I have no idea what you're talking about other than, uh, I think it's a pretty funny story. It's really interesting. I want to get into the investing side a little bit. Yeah. This is an investing show after all. This may surprise some people, but I think it's uh, important to talk about. There are some similarities between investing and gambling. Can you uh, throw out what you think are the most important similarities? And then we'll get into the differences, which I think are probably more important. <laughs> yeah, it's probably has to do with uh, three primary elements. Um, and my sort of thoughts on this are continuing to develop, but the knowledge that you have about what you're quote, buying or placing a bet on uh, your, as well as the knowledge you have about your own personal circumstances, you know, let's say in a, in a more standard sense, how, what you are investing in uh, is, is related to, or affects everything else in your portfolio. There is a bankroll management aspect or a portfolio management aspect where you're just deciding, you know, how much of your bankroll you want to put on any individual investment or, or trade. Uh, and then it's your long-term thinking. Like if you were to repeat this action, you know, infinite and infinite number of times, would you over the long run expect to succeed with a fairly high expectation of succeeding? And then when you look at investing in gambling, you can kind of, th those are sort of um, metrics that you can judge investing in gambling on. Yeah. So uh, the main things that I thought of uh, along those lines is in, in both cases, you're risking capital and, and hoping yep. to get a return. And also in both cases, you are trying to maximize return and minimize risk. Now, there are numerous uh, differences, I think, that are, that are very important. And I think sometimes, especially newer investors or people who, um, I, I want to say younger, just because it, they often are younger. Um, not that it's always younger people, but 
they pay attention to the, the similarities and they totally forget about the differences. So let's transition a little bit and talk about the differences. What makes investing investing versus gambling? Uh, I think it's important to recognize what it's not and, and what most people think it is or what it's determined by. So like the vehicle that you are using does not determine whether you, or not you are investing or gambling. The stock market, crypto, blackjack even, these can all be vehicles for investing and they can all be vehicles for gambling. And that's one of the biggest mistakes I see people making is they're thinking, oh, I'm buying a stock, I'm necessarily investing. And that's just, that's not true in the slightest. Um, you know, when you don't really understand the company, the market, the risks associated with it, it's a gamble. And particularly when you're looking at it on a short-term basis, can I make a, a couple bucks in a couple months? Um, so uh, to really distinguish the two though, it's got to have that long-term view and you ultimately have to be able to, I think what I was saying before, you've got to be able to repeat an action uh, over and over and over again into the future and see that some sort of expected return. One of the major differences is in a casino, the there's a house advantage, right? That there's the casino itself has an expected win rate. They have an advantage over the typical person who walks into that casino and starts putting their money down. And that over time, that advantage holds true. So you might go into a casino, you might be up a thousand dollars in the first, yeah. like you mentioned earlier, 15 minutes. Yeah. You're probably not going to continue to repeat that if you're there for another 15 minutes, another 15 minutes, another 15 minutes, another 15 minutes. In fact, like you mentioned earlier, it's going to revert to the mean more yeah. than likely. And you're going to give back that money uh, and, and the casino is going to be back in the position of the house advantage. So I think that's one big difference. And when it, with investing, time works the opposite. As time extends, your advantage increases um, a, as an investor. And again, we still have to, I think, further define investor at some point, and we'll get to that. And then the other thing is mitigating loss. And this is something I was thinking about kind of before the show when I was personally working through what I think the differences between gambling and investing are. I think loss mitigation is a big one yeah. because- Yes, there might be certain ways in gambling to hedge or whatever. I'm not. I'm not. A, I'm not a big gambler, so I really w wouldn't be able to tell you. But it, but it, when you're investing, you have you can put a stop loss order in so that you can automatically trigger a sell. You can use options or some other investment vehicles to maybe hedge a position, particularly if you've got a large position that you can't necessarily just sell very quickly, some legacy position or something like that. So there are other options. So I think those are the ones that come to mind. But I think you really nailed the main one. And, and I think that is time. When a, when you're gambling, when the hand is over, you either won or lost. Or when the, the race is over, if you're gambling on horses, which is the one type of gambling I will do every once in a while. Although with no expectation of any return whatsoever. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's over then. Whereas, you know, people hold um, stock or real estate or any other, other investments for decades, uh, if not longer. So I think those are kind of what I piece together in, in my thinking. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, I, yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, um, when you take an action, um, and you're, when you take an action, regardless of whether you consider it investing or gambling, when you take an action, uh, regardless of what happens in the short term, it's, it's what happens when you repeat that action, because yeah. in, in blackjack, you know, it's easy to, it, it's a very, uh, finite game. So it's easy to just literally see your calculated edge at any given time. When you are trading, uh, whether it's stocks, crypto, no matter what, even if like you're, you're buying um, pieces of art, 
you know, and you're trying to flip those. Like it's just, it's so, it can be a lot more difficult to assess an edge. Uh, and, 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 and sometimes it's, it can be difficult to really know if you're investing like gambling versus a risky investment because, you know, strong, long-term diversified investments is pretty clear cut, but between a risky investment and gambling, sometimes you really just have to perform an action several times. And it's only backward looking that you can say, you know, actually I didn't have the right knowledge. I I wasn't sort of managing my bankroll correctly. And it was really a gamble. It wasn't a risky investment. Yeah. that Well, that's a great point. Uh, I, I've worked with a lot of clients who have, and, and, and including myself, by the way, when I look back on some of the investments, quote, mm-hmm. investments in air quotes um, that I made when I was younger, particularly, you know, in college and just out of college, I felt like I was investing. If you would have asked me what I'm doing, I would have said I'm investing. My definition of investing, knowing what I know today is totally different. Um, yeah. I was speculating and or gambling sometimes. And I think there's some nuance between those phrases as well, which mm. we can get into. But but again, I think you're absolutely right. I think um, some people would say they're doing one thing, but they're actually not. They're probably doing something totally different. And that's where I think people can really find themselves in trouble is when they think they're investing and they're not. And I think if you if you acknowledge what you're actually doing, it can be okay. You know, I don't think gambling is is bad per se. Yeah. I think it's only bad when you don't realize you're gambling. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, and, and again, like I've I've done the same stuff as well. Like I I spent, you know, a, a couple thousand dollars on some options several years back and it was only backward looking did I say, you know what, that that was speculating. And um despite the fact that I had researched the company and and had you know spent a good bit of time uh sort of calculating out where I thought the price would be at a, you know at a certain date. I just looking back, it was like, it was, it was so emotional. There was so much emotional, uh, invested in that, ironically invested in that. Like I, I just, and I think, um, I'm not sure if it was you or Shane that mentioned this on, you know, one of your last podcasts, but it's like, once you do so much research on a company, now there's this sort of desire to want to make it work. Regardless of the position that you place on the company, you're just like, I, I want to make something happen here. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah. I've made mistakes like that as well. Well, and, and I think that's part of any going through any process of learning, right? And I think that's why why I'm valuable to my clients and why you're valuable to, to your financial coaching clients is because you've made some of those mistakes. I've made some of those mistakes and I've dedicated a, a large chunk of my education and my time to making sure I don't repeat them in the future and that I can hopefully pass on those lessons to other people. So I think that part's really important. You brought up a point, Chris, that I was really interested in. I think it's an interesting point, something I've never thought about. You said earlier um, when you were talking about investment vehicles, Mm. which I think is, um, you know, we can talk a little bit more about, but you said it doesn't matter if it's stocks. It doesn't matter if it's crypto. doesn't matter if it's even blackjack, that any of those can be either, either gambling or investing depending on everything else surrounding that particular vehicle. I'd like to explore that a little bit more because I'm sure that there are some people listening who are probably thinking like blackjack can never be an investment unless you're a casino. And um, also people probably feel very strongly certain people about crypto, that it's all this made up speculative um, space. And and I've had several shows on crypto that, that um, get into some of those debates and, and, and things like that. So I think that's an interesting topic I'd like to explore a little bit more 
Can you kind of talk about blackjack as an investment in that sense and how, how it might fit the definitions we've already kind of um, described a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So what that looks like, well, first, let's say when people are gambling, what they're doing with blackjack, what they're doing is placing a an arbitrary amount of money uh, and making an arbitrary decision without an understanding of what that expectation should really turn out to be when they repeat it over and over and over. So if you flip it on the other side, you know, in, in blackjack, there's actually only one correct play for every possible hand. And there's only one correct amount to bet for every possible count. Remember the count, again, it, it just tells you, it's the proportion of high and low cards in the deck. And throughout gameplay, as the, you know, as a whole bunch of high cards come out or as a whole bunch of low cards come out, it's a, it's a, you know, dependent game, un- unlike roulette, which each spin of the wheel is independent of each other. So, you know, a whole bunch of low cards come out. Now, nece- there, there are going to be higher cards that come out. And because of that, um, the edge fluctuates throughout gameplay as well. So because there are, it, and that's part of the, the reason that I loved it. Like I, even math, I loved because at least on on a basic level, not like crazy math experience, you know, but on a basic level, it feels very finite and logical. And knowing that there was only one correct play and I was going to play that unless I had to deviate a little bit to, to take some cover, um, knowing that, knowing that if you could actually play like a computer, you know, play every perfect uh, every basic strategy decision correctly, every deviation from basic strategy, uh, those deviations change based on the count uh, and 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 play the perfect amount to bet or the precise amount to bet based on the the way that you're managing your bankroll, it can be a little bit riskier or or, or less risky. You can um, just you can see the numbers on paper and you can just literally perform, uh, uh, a simulation in real time, not just on your you know spreadsheet, but you can actually perform a, sim- a simulation in real life and you can see your expected return start to formulate like in front of your eyes. This that's what, so first off, that was a beautiful answer because I wanted to one demonstrate the difference between a professional blackjack player and someone who gets together with their friends and goes to the casino to have a good time, which absolutely nothing wrong with that. Uh, so long as you're uh, being responsible uh, in, in various ways. But I, you did uh, say something that I, I thought was rather interesting. So going back to your comparison of roulette and blackjack. Mm-hmm. And again, I, dude, I am the amateur of all amateurs. Um, so I, I'm learning a lot here as I go. But in roulette, the probabilities are the same every single time. Because right. you're, there's there's no impact of the last action on the future action. So that's what you were saying. And then with blackjack, though, what cards were previously used now has an impact because they're not available in future hands. Is, yes. is that kind of, so that's where you as a card counter are trying to get your edge is by having an understanding of what the remaining cards in the deck look like and what the probability of those cards being useful to you and increase your odds of winning. And that's why you would deviate your bets because now you know your odds are better or worse. Is, am I am I putting together the strategy a little bit? Yes, absolutely, one hundred percent. And uh, it's funny because now, uh, for the last I don't know how many years, casinos have started implementing uh, these things called continuous shuffle machines. And so, rather than having a set six deck shoe, it's actually in a machine. And after every hand, the cards go back into the machine and shuffled with the rest of the cards. And so, it actually turns what was previously a sort of dependent, you know, 
intervalt game into now an independent game similar just as, just as similar right. to uh, a spin of the roulette wheel um so but but yeah other everything else exactly that i mean that's how it works and that's how you can um that's how you can win money in the long run is by knowing that edge and then so we, we use something in blackjack called kelly criterion um john kelly i think you know, made it big back in the fifties. And I know traders use it as well sometimes, but, and this goes back to something you were saying about minimizing your losses, because, um, we know that, you know, when your bankroll drops 50%, it takes a hundred percent to catch back up. And so mm-hmm. one of the biggest things that we're trying to do throughout that is to play to that edge such that we can really minimize our risk of ruin our, our risk of going completely bankrupt. No, that makes sense. I think that's really interesting about, I, I did not know that the casinos, I'm not surprised that they're with the automatic shuffling oh, machines. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Bad for you for sure. Well, let's, let's shift just a touch. Now that I'm wrapping my head a little bit around where you were at, I'm trying to like put you in this uh, point in time um, and then kind of compare that to like where you might be now. That's kind of the way I'm, I'm thinking through this. Let's talk a little bit about the, the confusion between the two, mm-hmm. because I think that's, really what the the gist of this conversation is going to be about because there are so many people who are confusing the two and I want to try to get to the kind of bottom of why that's happening so let let me start with this do you think that's happening more today than versus 10 20 30 years ago yes but it's only a guess you know it's it's only because uh it's anecdotal and so um, but yeah, the fact that there's so much more access to be able to make a purchase, I, I, I'm like, I hesitate to say to make an investment because it's not necessarily an investment just because you're buying something that other people typically invest in. But yeah, you can, it, it used to be that you'd have to put several thousand dollars, uh, deposit several thousand dollars into a brokerage account. You had commission fees. Um, you know, many years ago, it was 20, 30, 40, $50 per trade. And, you know, Robinhood came in and paved the way for commission-free trading. And now all the competitor brokers are doing the same for stocks and crypt, uh, for stocks and options and, and other derivatives, and, as well as like Coinbase. Yeah, you've got some of those, I think they're called gas fees. I'm not a crypto trader myself. And so you've yeah, got- For Ethereum, they are, yeah. Yeah. So you've got some fees that you pay for your trades, but like you can just do it on your phone. It's so crazy. Everyone has access to it. So I, I think that just because of that access, is probably more common now than it was many years ago. There's always been confusion between the two. I do probably tend to agree with you that it's a little bit more heightened today. And I think it's probably twofold. I think because gambling is much more accessible mm. um, than it used to be. I mean, to your point about being able to trade, easily on your phone right there, then and out. You can do the same thing with gambling. Used to, you had to know a bookie or you had to go to a casino or something like that, you know, with DraftKings. And um, I'm not even really familiar with all the gambling applications that are out there, but I know there are many of them. Gambling has become much more widely available to Mm. to everybody. And at the same time, uh, as you mentioned, it's so much easier to trade stocks and crypto and really almost any type of asset, even, even pooling money in, you know, into funded pools to buy land, farmland. I mean, literally it's just, it's much more, it, it, it's much more simple to put your money to whatever use you want, whether that's to work, whether that's to gamble, whether that's to invest or whatever. So I think that's a big part of it. And the other, I think goes back to what you said about Robin hood and, and it's not just Robin hood. And, and I, I think Robin hood has done some things that are very positive. Yeah. Um, but I do think there's become a gamification element 
that hasn't seen the same equivalent rise of education that maybe would be helpful to accompany it. Yeah. Um, that now again, that's just my opinion and, and similar to you, that's anecdotal. That's what I've seen with, with clients and that's what I've seen with friends. And that's what I've, um, I've even dabbled to see what's out there. Um, just looking on my own to see what options are out there and what are people using and why. So that's what I've seen as well. Yeah. I also think that the fact that the internet and social media has just made it so easy to not just like, like when you hear, or when someone hears about the next best stock or the, the, the next best crypto trade, it's no longer just, Hey, you know, buddies, giving my buddies a call and letting them know that this is the next best thing. But now you're posting it on Wall Street Bets on Reddit or, or sharing it on Instagram or Twitter or whatever it might be. And now it's open to the whole world. Whereas, you know, years ago before that, your desire to gamble or speculate was limited to just you and, and the people that you could sort of contact in your network. And now it's just exploded and anyone can can um, recommend any sort of trade. And the more sort of risky it is, the more attention it gets. Yeah, it's a great point. Let's let's break that down a little further because I think there's a, a lot there. One thing I've noticed in I don't have a TikTok account, but I constantly see on Twitter people posting these ridiculous, <laughs> ridiculous um, investing uh, related TikTok videos. And for example, I was watching one. This was probably a couple months ago, but it was this couple who has like a massive following. I mean, like, I don't know, probably a million, probably a million followers. And they were like literally showing charts of various stocks that they, they took some random moving day average. I, I don't even remember what it was. And they were like, oh, oh, we've made X amount of money. And it's very simple when it hits the, uh, this moving oh, average. Oh, yes, yes. And, and it's like, and, and, you know, they, they had all these comments and like all these people, you know, saying they're going to do this as well. And like, this is genius. And I'm, I'm just cringe so hard when I see things like that, because you just don't know what someone's going to do. Who's ill prepared to take that information in filter, filter it and, and take action. And you, you just worry. I worry for people that they're going to blow money a, and, and, and oftentimes money they they don't have or, or certainly don't have to lose. So I think that's one thing that like is, is troublesome for sure. Yeah. I, and, and, and for listeners, I think one of the biggest takeaways is just, um, and you've probably got some advanced listeners too, is just for the, for the newbies to sort of investing. I think one of the biggest takeaways is to just internalize the fact that um, the vehicle does not determine whether you are investing or gambling that, yeah. you know, no matter what, uh, stock tip or crypto tip or, you know, land investment, real estate tip, no matter what it is, every vehicle can be used for either one. And it's really going to boil down to how much time, uh, how much knowledge you accrue about that investment. Um, and it, it, is it something that's going to, again, if you repeat this action, an infinite number, an infinite number of times, will it trend upwards in the long run? And are you putting up a, a small enough amount of money that it's not going to, you know, ruin you with the variability that, that can be affected by, you know, iterating this, this, this wager. Yeah, absolutely. And it, as I'm sure you do as well, Chris, I get a lot of, you know, friends or acquaintances or whatever asking me, or sometimes it's phrased like I'm thinking about buying X could be, could be Bitcoin, could be some stock, could be anything what do you think? And I always answer with one, or I always respond with a one word question. Why? Oftentimes 
the the reason they say they want to do that is because their friend did it or because it's been going up or that you know they have very little knowledge of what that company does or why that cryptocurrency exists or how it actually fundamentally operates or all about making the money and making money is a good reason to want to invest or even to gamble um but that doesn't make the definition of what you're actually doing that's just you know you have the why you're buying that particular thing needs to be more than to make money Otherwise, you might as well go to a roulette table yes. and uh, pick a color. Yeah, M- more than just to make money, more than just because your buddy told you it was a good decision. Um, I remember I was speaking, uh, working with a UFC fighter, and he's a super smart dude, had been trading some of his own stocks, which you know I, I comment on. Um, you know, I share my view that you know, really, you're, you're, unless you're dedicating the time, like there's nothing wrong with trading. Like, there's nothing wrong with day trading, quant trading, like uh, you know, crypto, whatever it might be. Nothing wrong with it, and it's not inherently gambling, right? It's just um, how much time and, and how much like energy and effort and focus are you dedicating to your craft? Because this is not a game that you're going to just walk in. You know, this is a professional level game. Um, but I remember I was um, talking to him. He said that he had uh, rolled his uh, IRA into his buddy's hedge fund, and I was just like, you know. Uh, Okay, but are you know are you aware that most professional investors, hedge funds included, don't outperform the market? I mean, this is if you want to do that with some chunk of money, by all means. But like your IRA, your retirement accounts, like this is supposed to be your what your this is like your fallback. But you know, do what you can, make as much money as you can while you're young, and and make some risky investments while you're young. But don't screw around with your four hundred one k and your IRA. Like put that into a, a diversified index fund or if you want to dedicate your time, really learn how to, uh, you know, get a return that's much greater than the S and P, if you can, and, um, and and by all means do that because you're going to get tax advantages in your IRA. But otherwise, like it's just it's a common mistake I see people make. Not the IRA rolling over, but just you know the want for money, right. the want for hey, this is advice for my buddy, and I'm going to do it because of that. Right. I, I've been thinking a lot about just long term behavior and and why sometimes it's difficult for all of us, any of us to do what is ultimately the right thing. Um, and I, I think there's a big one. And I think this wraps back into our discussion about gambling versus investing. Um, and I think it goes back to your point as well about social media, and that is instant gratification. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very hard um, and it's and it's increasingly difficult, I think, to put aside your current desires when they're so in your face to do something that makes the most sense when you zoom out. Um, Because look, let's face it, you and I have a hard time imagining being 65 years old right now. We're both relatively young guys, yeah. but it's not going to be that long and we're going to be 65 years old. And you don't want to be looking back uh, and saying, I made a lot of short-sighted, ill-advised decisions because I was seeking immediate pleasure, immediate gratification. I was trying to win big all at once instead of just um, making small um, marginal efforts that that aggregate over time and can really build wealth that way. So, you know, I say these things and talk to people that I respect in that in that way to drill that into my own head, because just like everybody else, I'm fighting that battle to to want what I want now. I've got to um, continue. You know, I do a lot of writing and things like that not for other people. It's to remind myself and, and to keep keep me on track. Um, I think that instant versus delayed gratification element 
that's amplified by the media and social media and all of these things is a big, big reason why people gravitate, especially young people often gravitate towards the the gambling or the more um, speculative risk on elements um, with their money. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that that actually sort of hits the, the nail on the head there because for especially younger folks who aren't where they want to be financially, it can be very tempting uh, to think that you know, a, a potential 20x return on your investment in like a span of six months is something that you should put some money down. And you, and, and you rationalize it because you say, oh, well, if it does hit, then, you know, I'm going to be here. But, um, you know, to, to, to those folks, I just say, look, it, it, if you are not happy or, or if you're not happy where you are financially today, take that money that you would be investing in risky assets and invest it in yourself to develop your skills and your network um, and and get to a point where you can make more money uh, through your time. There's nothing wrong with trading your time for money. It's just, you know, learn, invest in yourself so you can find ways to do things that you enjoy and trade your time for things that you enjoy doing and make more money that way. That's a much better investment of your money than a, a risky investment. Yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more with that. I think that's really important. And you mentioned the UFC um, fighter that you you deal with, and I, as I understand it, you have uh, carved out a little niche there and work with UFC fighters, which I think is is really cool to get so specific to really understand that particular group's challenges, um, advantages they have, disadvantages, and really be able to help them more specifically. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? I'm curious as to um, when you're working with with that type of uh, person, that type of athlete that's paid, you know, that way, which I assume is is a little bit sporadic and things like that. Um, what what types of uh, unique challenges do you um, kind of help them through that maybe um, is a little bit different from just kind of the the day to day that that most of us would experience? Yeah, I, and it's funny because I actually just put up a Twitter thread the you know last week before a, a big UFC event that blew up quite a bit. Um, a whole bunch of UFC fighters retweeted it, but I'm basically saying like managing UFC money is wild because these fighters are only fighting and getting paid maybe two or three times a year. Oftentimes they do have other sources. They, they can't have other sources of income, like teaching at their gyms or, you know, sponsorship deals. Uh, but not only is it sporadic, they don't, you don't know how much money you're going to earn. So you've got a, a, you got a contract that says you're going to get paid as fighters get a, a certain amount of money just for showing up, you know, stepping into that cage. And then typically it's, um, you know, the same amount of money if they win. And then they can also get a performance bonus if they knock someone out or submit someone in a, you know, spectacular fashion. Um, so you, not only do you not know when you're going to get paid, you don't know how much it's going to be and anything can happen. Like you can get, the fighters can get sick or injured. Uh, their opponent can get the same sick or injured or, um, or get popped for performance enhancing drugs, or they can miss weight. Like there's just a lot, there's so much unpredictability there. And when I was, um, a couple of years ago thinking about, you know, starting my financial coaching business and thinking that, you know, I really want to start with a specific group of people so I can really understand their needs and speak to them directly. Being aware of that stuff is what initially drew me to them. Um, and so one of their biggest challenges is just like when they receive money, they've got a way, um, filling up like living expenses for the next, let's say four to six months, because there's so much unpredictability when they'll get paid again. Um, right. A lot of the fighters I work with have debt, like student loans and credit card debt. And it's challenging to say, you know, the, the, the classic salaried employee, 
is more it's, it's easier to just say look fill up three three months of living expenses perhaps in an emergency fund and then really start paying off your high interest debt for these right. fighters they're like yeah this this high interest debt is killing me but if i don't put money aside um i might not fight and then then what am i gonna do i'm just gonna accrue more debt so um and, and be- between that and then investing too because they're like anyone else they want to put their money to good use but it's challenging to know how much they should use uh, when they've got these other competing priorities I'm curious how, um, in your experience, the average fighter, I mean, what, what type of level are they starting at? Are most of them pretty savvy to begin with or, or not so much, or is it all over the place? It's just totally dependent on the individual. Yeah. I'd say it's just as, um, dependent, I know on just as anyone else would be, you know, and and any other industry, you know, it's just someone who happens to, you know, many of them are college educated. Um, but you know, ironically you don't learn about finance and personal finance in school, regular school, you don't learn about it in college with a finance degree, or at least you don't when, uh, I didn't, when I was in school, um, you know, back in 2013, something like that. Um, it got to a point where I was studying abroad in London. I was trying to get credit for this personal finance class. Um, and my, uh, this, you know, someone in the finance department back in my home school was saying, you know, he's not going to give me credit or allow me to use that personal finance class towards my finance degree because it's just not part of the curriculum. I'm like, you're freaking crazy. Like this is, (laughs) I am, I'm, I'm going to school here, paying all this money, trying to learn about money and finance. And, uh, eventually I went up to the Dean and I said, look, I am, I'm taking this class. I'm going to get credit for it. And I did, but yeah, it's a struggle. And I think, uh, UFC fighters and entrepreneurs employ, no matter what you're doing, um, unless you have really dedicated time to learning and studying personal finance or you're working with someone who who has uh it's it's a tough game yeah i mean i think that's unfortunate that the education system we have in place today just doesn't doesn't really place much of an importance on personal finance and uh, you know I, there's a lot of you know reasons behind that i talked with tyrone ross who's a big crypto guy but also a major proponent of of you know, helping people who have less access to financial education in, in the financial system. Um, and I've had a lot of conversations with, with various individuals about why that is, what options are there to get that changed. And I, I think it's unfortunate that we're, we're sitting here in 2022 and we still haven't figured out how to teach kids the basics about money and compound interest and, you know, avoiding debt, at least high interest debt that is not providing any asset or, or anything in return and all of these things. So it's, I think it's unfortunate, but it's, but it's true. And I think that's why people like you exist um, to, to, to help people and people like me to help, help people figure out how to navigate that. But I thought that was a really cool, very specific, very specific niche. Um, so that, that's, that's really cool. How, how did you, uh, how did that happen? Uh, well, it started with, I actually started working with a business coach who like just for uh, probably a couple of years, I knew that I wanted to do some financial coaching. Like once I really built my own skill in managing my money well, uh, and not only that, but recognizing like ha- having done all of the traditional stuff, um, you know, finance economics degree, interned at a, at a hedge fund for a couple of summers, trained on wall street. Like I, I, when I didn't know what to do with my money and I struggled with like tracking it and organizing it in an efficient way, that was I already knew I wasn't going to get it. Like I already knew that the other (laughs) avenues that I had tried weren't working. So that put a spotlight on it for me. And and I said, oh my gosh, like I've got to start helping other folks because, you know, what does that mean for everyone else? So, um, yeah, I started working with a business coach. She 
works specifically with uh, financial coaches. And there were a couple key things that helped me there. But one of them was just like the, the contract, the, how you can structure a program and all that. But she was saying, look, start with a particular group of people, one that you want to work with, one that could be profitable and all that. Um, and I had trained uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is the grappling martial art in MMA yeah, and cool. UFC. So I had trained that pretty seriously for a couple of years out of school. Um, in fact, playing blackjack was you know, one of a, a big motivation for me to continue making blackjack work and all these other gig jobs that I took because it enabled me to train sometimes twice a day if I wanted to five days a week. Um, my instructor was a UFC fighter. And so, and I had been a fan of the UFC since I was maybe like 14 years old. So I had all this interest. I had knew, I had known people and um, eventually started putting out content specific to fighters, reaching out to them, just introducing myself saying, Hey, this is what I do. This is, um, you know, you know, I'd love to hop on a call sometime. Um, and, and that's kind of how I, I got started with them. Very cool. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. And I think that's, that's always good when somebody can, can, you know, dive in and, and really, you know, they probably know, you know, this guy, Chris understands what we're going through. He works with other fighters. So, so I think that's really, really interesting. Um, I want to get back to one other point we talked about earlier, and that is the word speculation. Mm -hmm. I think, I think the word speculation has become like a little bit of a bad word. Like, uh, you know, oh my gosh, he's speculating, meaning like that's stupid or, or, or whatever. And I don't, I don't really think that's fair personally. I think mm -hmm. speculation isn't necessarily a, a, a bad thing inherently. Um, I think it goes back to what we discussed earlier and everyone has buckets of money, right? Essentially. So, you know, you might have your emergency fund, you might have your retirement investments, you might have some other investments, you might have some real estate. To me, speculation would just be another one of those buckets, probably smaller than, than most mm -hmm. of the others. Yeah. Um, and, and, and not everyone has any interest in, in speculating. But to me, that's a particular um, kind of branch, if you will, of, of, of where your money might go. But again, I think the issue comes back to the fact that so many people are speculating. They're buying an asset with no understanding of what, what it is that they're owning. They couldn't tell you why they own it other than they hope it might go up at some point in the future. Now, to me, that that's blind speculation. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you might buy something and understand what it is, but also understand like this is a very specific technology, for example. Mm -hmm. you, uh, and and I'll even I'll even get a little more specific, not necessarily with any names, but you might buy a a medical company that's doing some sort of um, DNA sequencing, and that's a technology that could go many different directions um, and, and could become you know, a pillar of healthcare in the future, or it could uh, totally dissipate. And, and people could say that was kind of neat. Remember that arrow when we were trying to do that, that to me might be, could be speculation, which I don't think would necessarily be a bad thing, provided you understand what role that plays in your, in your overall financial picture, what role it plays in your portfolio, that it's allocated properly based on your risk tolerance, mm -hmm. based on your, your objectives, your time horizon, all of those things that, that, that financial advisors and, and people coaching people with their money need to understand. That's, I kind of went on a rant there because I, I think the word speculation gets a bad, bad rap sometimes. I, I think it's, it goes back to um, the similar with gambling. It's, it's when you think you're doing something different than you're doing yes. Yes. where you, where you run into trouble. Yeah. And, and as soon as you said that um, speculating has a bad rap, I'm like, yeah, it does. And I even have, like, I could feel internally like, 
you know, that, that negative bias with the, with the term mm-hmm. for sure. Um, but yeah, you're totally right. Like if you want to dedicate a percentage of your portfolio to speculate on things, then, um, you know, then do it 5%, 10% if, or, or, or if you're younger and you just feel like, you know, you've got money coming in and, um, this isn't just a, a random, like the, the, it's, it's a spectrum, right? Almost investing Absolutely. in gambling, you know, Absolutely. so it's like, depending on where you are on that spectrum, if you want to wager a certain amount of money, um, and not blindly, right? Because that would be full opposite end of the spectrum, arbitrary amount of money, no idea what you're buying or investing in, no idea what the outcome should be. Like that's the that's the one extreme. But if you're sort of teetering and you're just like, yeah, like you said, if this is a potentially up and coming DNA sequencing uh, uh, company and they could have some amazing, you know, products or impact on the world, I want to put, you know, a, a few percentages, a few a few points of my portfolio into this company. Um, yeah, I think that's that's fine to do as long as you're aware that that's what you're doing, and and the expectation. Mm. You know, you're not going to expect that that the the range of outcomes for that company is going to be totally different than if you're investing in some blue chip dividend yeah. paying stock that has a history of raising dividends for you know seventy five quarters. I mean, totally totally different. Again, going back to what you said earlier, both stocks. Mm-hmm. Um, but but very very different in the makeup of how you should look at them, what you should expect um, from them, and, and, and all of those things. A range of outcomes is just wildly uh, different. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Well, cool. Let's um let's get into a couple clo- closing questions. I like to ask a couple questions at the, at the end. Um, you know, especially after I've got a, I like to see if what I can anticipate what you're going to say a little bit, or if I'm totally off base, but. One of the, the first question is, what does wealth mean to you, Chris? Yeah, and um, I, I maybe have the uh, advantage uh, that I listened to one of your recent episodes where you sort of compiled a lot of the um, answers that that people came up with. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So um, I liked some of them, but uh, really, wealth is is wealth is your ability to control your time. So one of my favorite definitions of wealth was actually the one that um, Robert Kiyosaki quotes uh, Buckminster Fuller. It says that wealth is your ability to continue living after you stop working or how much time you can continue living after you stop working, which um, I really enjoyed for a while. It's a different way to think about wealth, but it sort of requires that you have passive income when I don't think you need to have so much passive income that it just completely exceeds your living expenses and then meets all of your other wildest dreams. I just don't think it has to be on that level for you to consider yourself wealthy. I think it it boils. I think you can't really talk about wealth without talking about freedom and time and control, because if you can, if you can wake up every morning and do something like do work that you actually enjoy and you're fulfilled, then I'd say you're, you're wealthy. Yeah, I agree. I think that was, that was well put. Um, there's always the themes, right? Time, pro- time and freedom. Those are probably the two that, that come up the most. And obviously for, for very important reasons. And they're, they're just intimately linked together. Um, but I, I don't know, there's something about that question and hearing people's responses. And my, my favorite is when someone hasn't listened or thought about it in advance, because you can see them working through it themselves. Um, and, and that's what I did. I remember the first time I actually asked it to somebody, I was like, shit, I don't, I don't know how I would answer this. And I'm sitting here asking somebody the same question. So um, it's kind of interesting. The second question is if you could go back in time 
um, maybe to uh, right before you were graduating college and getting ready to to go on the uh, blackjack uh, tour there and, and mm-hmm. give that a shot. What advice would you give yourself about the future? This is this is a really tough one. I think it. Um, like I, I know now, I, I can feel what the honest answer is, and it like kills me to like actually speak this into existence. But I think that <laughs> I would have taken a job as like as as much as I just would have like hated it at the time. I could have built up such a much bigger blackjack bankroll and made so much more money. Granted, right, like. Then you go back and had I done that and we had this conversation many years later, I might have said the opposite, you know, for any number of different reasons. Maybe I sure. wouldn't have left that job because the money was so good. But um, yeah, like I just feel like if I had even done that job for a year, I could have left and had um, just just accelerated my 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 wealth so much faster. I, I, normally, that's my last question, but I, I kind of want you to extend that and pontificate a little bit more because I think that's interesting. When you talk about bankroll, uh, uh, looking at it from a blackjack standpoint, can you just explain that a little, like why, what does that mean? What, why would that be a, a much bigger advantage for you? I'm, I'm just yeah. trying to wrap my head around that. Yeah. So there's, there's a couple things. First of all, um, again, I mentioned before, like even in the most advantageous scenarios, Based on the amount of variability that you can experience in blackjack, you really shouldn't be betting more than about one and a half percent of your entire bankroll. Another important figure to consider is the fact that your total bankroll, if you're using one of the most popular sort of betting strategies, is to use a, a form of Kelly criterion. It's called uh, like half Kelly, where if I were to oversimplify a bit, it's basically having 500, splitting your bankroll up into 500 units. And so that means that, you know, if you have, if you want to play a $25 hand of blackjack, you need, um, you know, maybe my math's wrong here, but I think you need like a $12,500 as a bankroll. So, okay. and, and, and there are, you know, now with the, as, as casinos are introducing worse rules for blackjack players, unbeknownst to them, like six to five payouts on a blackjack rather than three to two, you know, can't resplit your cards more than once, like a continuous shuffle machines where you can't actually count cards. Um, like all that stuff fades away when you get into the high limit room, hundred dollars per hand minimum. And so like, if we had started with, let's say a $50,000 bankroll and we could start with hundred dollar hands, um, or even a hundred thousand dollar bankroll, like on average, you can expect to win maybe one percent of everything that you wager. So, um, like, yeah, just just having ha- having started off with like fifty or a hundred grand right off the bat would have been huge, or or a million. Like, I, that's not where I would have been in a span of a year, but yeah, it just the, the more you have, the more you're going to make. So, one, I'm a liar today because I've, I, that generated another question. Going back to counting cards, what mentally, like, what can you just like walk me through what? How specific are you actually trying to register every single card in your memory bank? Like what, what is that process like? Mm. So no. So, and the the reason is because in blackjack tens and face cards, um, with the exception of an ace, like 10 Jack queen and King are all have a value of 10. Yeah. Yeah. And an ace is a one or 11. So, um, so no, you don't have to know, memorize each one. You just have to use a high, low tracking system where, you know, let's say uh, a two, three, four, five, and six, that's five cards are all plus one is how you count in your head. Seven, eight, nine is neutral. And then 10 Jack, queen, king, and ace all have a, a negative one 
uh, value to it. And so every deck actually adds up to zero. And that's how the math works, even with a single deck. So, you know, what we do to practice counting cards is we will take three cards out of a deck um, or, you know, four or five cards out of a six deck shoe or something. And then you count down all the way until the end of those cards. And then you should know, let's say if, if you get to the, you know, to the end and, and the count that you've counted through is negative two, well, the remaining card should add up to positive two. Um, right. And that's kind of, right. that's how it works. So it's almost like, a, you know, you've got like an old fashioned scale. Yes. And it's, it's really the, the balance of the, of the uh, remaining cards that you're shooting for, not so much like any specific card in your, in your mind. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah, Interesting. exactly. Yeah. I promise you, I'm not going to try to count cards. <laughs> you know what? If you decide to one day, James, you give me a call and I'll, I'll talk you through it. I'll give you my best advice that I can, but I think that you're probably going to do a lot better just doing what you're doing. <laughs> well, I promise you're right about that. Although I, I might try to get a, some of my friends together for a card game and, and, try to kick their ass a little bit, but probably won't happen. Probably won't happen. But uh, where can people find you, Chris, if they want to learn more, reach out to you or, or whatever? Sure. Yeah. My tag on just about every social media account is Chris Allen Hannah. No H on the end of that, Hannah. Um, now I'm finally on TikTok and I've been on Instagram and, and everything. So you can find me there. Uh, if you want to get in touch with me, you can shoot me a text 240-630-0568, either myself or my assistant will get back to you. Wonderful. Well, I, I certainly appreciate it. I learned a lot about uh, gambling and it. I'll tell you what, it made me think um, more about about investing because mm. um, like we talked about, there, there are some similarities and some differences. And I think there are certain times in the market where people tend to confuse them more than others. Uh, this correction, I think, enlightened some folks yeah, uh, and maybe made people think a little bit more about what they're doing and, and how they should classify you know, their behaviors, which I think is a good thing. That's a learning experience. And I went through it. it sounds like you went through it um, in your experience. So I think it's, it's overall going to be a net net gain for all those folks who are, who are cringing when they, when they open their account and look at their balances and, and uh, but you know, this is the time uh, where you figure out if you're an investor or not. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I, I enjoyed it. It was, it was such an honor to talk to you and uh, uh, had a good time. And the and the bourbon was good too. Yeah. It was a good reintroduction to Basil Hayden. So. Yeah, yeah, it was. And and you run such an awesome podcast, James. I, I so appreciate you having me on. It was great to meet you and talk to you. Um, and for sure, this is a unique uh, podcast. I you know haven't sipped on this in a while either. So this is fun for me. Well, good deal. I like investing and, and I like bourbon. So I figured uh, why not pair them up? for ultimate enjoyment. Love it. I love it. So, all right, Chris, we'll take care. You too. Thanks, James. Thanks for listening to another episode of Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. Don't forget to share the show with anyone you think might find these discussions interesting and follow us to be informed when new episodes drop. On the next episode, we'll be talking about the importance of estate planning. Yes, even for you if you're young and healthy. Until then, cheers. Cheers.